My dear brothers and sisters, the first uttered words of the Prince of Peace, as recorded in the New Testament, are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is a divine principle and is required for man's salvation into the kingdom of heaven. President David O. McKay, when speaking on the importance of repentance, said, Every principle and ordinance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is significant and important in contributing to the progress, happiness, and eternal life of man. But there is none more essential to the salvation of the human family than the divine, eternally operative principle, repentance. Without it, no one can be saved. Without it, no one can progress. End of quote. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Savior made it possible for each individual to receive forgiveness of his sins. His atonement and teachings made it possible for me and for you to repent and to be prepared to enter into the kingdom of heaven. President Spencer W. Kimball said, When we think of the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and the suffering he endured for us, we would be ingrates if we did not appreciate it so far as our power made it possible. He suffered and died for us. Yet if we do not repent, all his anguish and pain on our account are futile. Jesus taught, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer even as I. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. I repeat, but if they would not repent, they must suffer, even as I. The great prophet Abinadi gave this warning, But remember that he that persists in his own carnal nature and goes on in the ways of sin and rebellion against God remaineth in his fallen state, and the devil hath all power over him. Therefore he is, is as though there was no redemption made being an enemy of God, and also is the devil an enemy of God. The devil is strongly against man's repenting and preparing himself for the kingdom of heaven. The devil's mission and goal is to destroy man's potential godliness and his preparation to be again with his heavenly Father. Repentance will stop the devil and keep him from entering the hearts of men. Jesus Christ lived his life and gave his life so that man might have the gospel and repent and prepare himself to live with God in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, No unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. It is written in the scriptures, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. President Harold B. Lee gave this counsel, The heaviest burden that one has to bear in this life is the burden of sin. The Apostle Paul taught, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sins that are not repented of is death. 
death to man's potential godliness, death to man's opportunity for eternal life with his heavenly Father. The prophet Alma counseled the people, Except ye repent, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of heaven. Apostle Peter said, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have should come to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is sorrow for sin, that sin with constructive self-condemnation, and complete turning away from sin. It is therefore more than regret and remorse. It brings about changes and makes room for the Christ-like life in preparation for entering into the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is turning away from that which is not according to God's commandments and the striving and knowing and living according to his commandments. Think King Benjamin counseled his people on how to repent. You must, must repent of your sins and forsake them and humble yourselves before God and ask in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. And now if you believe all these things, see that you do them. And behold, I say unto you, that as you do this, ye shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God, always retaining a remission of your sins, and ye shall grow in knowledge of the glory of him that created you. Jesus taught the people, I, the Lord, forgive sins, and am merciful unto those who confess their sins with humble hearts. He who has repented of his sins, the Lord said, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. The prophet Moses said, Through repentance we may be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. Jesus warned that only a few would confess and forsake their sins and pay the price to find the Lord's way to the kingdom of heaven. Many will take and follow the course that leads to destruction, <clears throat> destruction of the divine privilege of living with God. The Savior commanded, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And why are there few that will find the Lord's straight and narrow way, which leadeth unto life and salvation into the kingdom of God? Because they will not repent, because they will not learn and keep all of God's commandments, they will not follow Jesus Christ. They will not find and follow the Lord's living prophet and apostles. What is God's most important and greatest blessing for his, for his obedient children? He commanded and promised, Trifle not with sacred things. If thou wilt do good, yea, and hold out faithful to the end, thou shalt be saved in the kingdom of God. Trifle not with sacred things. Many trifled with the, trifle with the sacred commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Some disrespect God and love his worldly creations more than they love God. They love the creature more than they love the Creator. Some love pleasure more than they love God. Many of the Lord's children trifle with the sacred privilege of eternal marriage by the Lord's priesthood in his temples. 
the Lord said through his priesthood, male and female should be one flesh when married. Many settle for until death do they part. They trifle with sacred things. Many trifle with the sacred commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and indulge their minds and bodies in illicit, illicit promiscuous sex acts. From the teachings of the scriptures we find that those that are guilty of illicit sex acts, unless they repent, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Some trifle with the Lord's sacred, hallowed Sabbath day and spend the day in sports, pleasure, and other worldly interests, when they should have been resting from worldly interests and devoting time to the spiritual side of life in reading the scriptures, attending religious meetings, and developing greater love for God, self, neighbor, and family. Some trifle with sacred scriptures. Jesus commanded, search the scriptures. They ignore the scriptures and fail to search them. Some trifle with the Lord's divine law of tithing and choose to rob God of his tithing. And as a result, the Lord said, they are cursed with a curse. And unless they repent, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Some trifle with the sacred responsibility of doing their genealogy and research work and for the living and the dead in the temples of the Lord. Some trifle with their sacred godlike minds and bodies and use drugs and stimulants to receive a lift when they should receive their lift from repentance and from knowing and uh, loving God and living his commandments. Some trifle with the priesthood of God and destroy and make mockery out of its power. <clears throat> the Lord said they do this because they become so engrossed in worldly interests. Some trifle with the sacred right to have children. Some trifle with the sacred right to love their neighbors as themselves. Some trifle with their sacred right to pray to their Father in heaven. They make up excuses and philosophies that make prayers look unwise and foolish. Some trifle with the sacred commandment, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfection is the divine way and comes through repentance, and following Jesus Christ. Each of us should make a list using God's commandments of what we need to do to, to attain salvation in the kingdom of heaven. There is no progress towards the kingdom of God without repentance. Our President Spencer W. Kimball said, Repentance is ever the key to a better, happier life. All of us need it whether our sins be grievous ones or the more complex. We all have need of the progress that comes from the purifying power of repentance. We need to comprehend more fully the potential godliness that we possess and the glorious opportunity to repent and to prepare to live someday in the kingdom of God. When did you last use the divine cleansing power of repentance? Remember, Jesus said, The worth of souls is great in the sight of God, and how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Every day in our prayers we should thank God for the divine principle of repentance. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, this conference spirit is upon us. 
and with you I thank our Heavenly Father for it, and for a prophet who leads us, and for his inspired co-workers who have lifted us in this session and the preceding sessions. And I, with you, earnestly pray that this conference may be both a milestone for the Church and a turning point in our lives. During the past four years, a great and marvelous miracle has occurred in the Church in the form of area general conferences. In Manchester, England in 1971, in Mexico City in 1972, in Munich, Germany in 1973, and only a few weeks ago the conference in Stockholm, Sweden. Perhaps you have already heard that the First Presidency have called four area general conferences for next year in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in Tokyo, Japan, and in Seoul, Korea, a quadrupling of effort in 1975. And we are learning that this is typical of the administration of President Spencer W. Kimball. As I have observed, the unfolding of these area conferences has been evident how the Spirit of the Lord has been poured out upon the saints in the various nations of the world. The assignments of preparation for these conferences are carried by local Church leadership, the acquisition and preparation of facilities and equipment, communications and media relations, transportation to and from the conference, lodging, food, music, cultural programs. And I can tell you that after four years of intimate association with these saints, that the Lord has inspired leaders throughout the world. Saints attending the area conference have made such statements as these. I did not know our people to do such things. We have more leadership than we know. Another, it is all more than any of us would have imagined. So well organized, so well planned. And to think we did it ourselves. And another, these weeks of preparation have been the greatest weeks of my Church membership. I didn't know we had so much talent, so great a capacity. I've learned of the love of these saints for the Lord. I've seen their great desires to attend these conferences. Remember the ten saints from Tijuana, Mexico, who, after four months of working and saving, finally obtained enough money to purchase their tickets for the 48-hour bus ride to Mexico City. When they were told there were no seats available for the long trip, they replied, It doesn't matter. We'll be happy to stand in the aisles for a chance to hear the prophet. And as you would expect in the spirit of the gospel, everyone on the bus rotated seats that all could sit some of the time. I remember other saints who, because floods had destroyed their crops, were fearful that they would not be able to attend the conference, but who, after fasting and prayer, sold some of their belongings and pooled their money for transportation. For many, there was no money left for food. But it did not matter. They decided they could fast for the three or four days of the conference. And as you would expect, other loving saints filled their plates 
as the Lord had filled their souls. The response of the saints in Scandinavia and Finland is typical. Said one of their leaders, I have heard many of our people say, I want to be ready spiritually to receive the message of the prophet. They put their desires into action. One gauge was their temple attendance before conference. Many areas doubled in total numbers of those who saved and prayed that they might journey from their northern homelands across Europe to the temple in Switzerland to renew their covenants with the Lord. In Italy there lives a brother Luigi Patino who, with other European saints, attended the Munich conference. For 17 years, Brother Patino had met on Sunday with one or two other saints. They'd have an opening prayer, read and discuss the scriptures, and partake of the sacrament. In the last few years, they were all in their 70s and 80s. There was loneliness and a feeling of isolation. Imagine the thrill for Brother Patino to sit with 14,000 other saints at the Munich Conference. After the Manchester Conference, one British saint said, When I saw 2,000 other British men in priesthood meeting, all holding the same holy priesthood that I possess, I cannot explain to you what it did for me. Said another, We've come together because we want to come to him. I've learned the Lord's great love for the saints. There are countless testimonies, brothers and sisters, of stories of his goodness to them, of the miracles that have occurred to these saints have given their all in service to him. There are stories of answered prayers, of healings, of changing hearts, of opening doors, and of giving time, talent, money, self. At the Munich Conference, President Harold B. Lee paraphrased the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, We are neither English, nor German, nor French, nor Dutch, nor Spanish, nor Italian, but we are all one as baptized members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At the Stockholm Conference, I remember the Danes, the Swedes, and the Finns singing with the Norwegians the great Norwegian anthem Discovery by Edvard Grieg. The conductor's comment was very enlightening. He said, Sometimes we have national jealousies, even in the Church, but this singing has brought us together. There is now a real spirit of unity, a spirit of knowing that we can work together and accomplish whatever we want to. That spirit of unity captured everyone present that night. Thousands stood in a standing ovation to the more than 300-voice choir from four nations. But above all else, brothers and sisters, through these conferences, I've learned that we are always led by a prophet of God. Who at the Stockholm Conference will ever forget President Spencer W. Kimball's counsel and his challenge. But one quote. He said, From this day on, we have a new order of things in these lands. 
President Kimball, they are different now than they were before. We've received reports that sacrament meeting attendance has increased tremendously. Spiritual roots are now deep in inviting soil. And so now we come to this conference, brothers and sisters. What do we want to accomplish as a result of it? Do we want it to affect our lives, better our families, change our wards and branches? The question is, do we really want a new order of things in our lives? If so, that's why we've gathered at this conference to begin a new order of things for each of us. How might we do this? May we suggest one way? 3,000 miles from this pulpit lives a family who will again do a very special thing following this conference. When the ensign arrives with the conference addresses at their home, the family will immediately read the messages with the older children reporting on selected addresses. But they'll do more than read. In family home meetings, they will select family and personal goals based upon the conference messages. Their goals are practical. Remember grandmother in her daily prayers. Memorize a church hymn. Review our family preparedness. Do the Lord's thing in his way, not ours. Bring a non-member to church. They will discuss their goals, pray about them, and review them frequently. Is there any wonder why the Father says, Our family regards general conference adds the Lord's list of things we should be concentrating on. It has meant more to us and our children than words can say. Brothers and sisters, how much are the instructions of this conference going to mean to us? How much will they mean to us as parents, as officers and teachers, as home teachers and visiting teachers? From my experiences with conferences, I testify that what is spoken under the influence of the Holy Ghost is Scripture, and as the Lord has said, and shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation that we might select goals from this conference that will bring salvation to us and our families, our neighbors, our wards and branches, I earnestly pray and bear you my witness that from every fiber of my being I know that God lives. I know that Jesus is our Savior. I know from very personal, wonderful experiences that President Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of God. And that witness I bear to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A number of years ago, A friend of mine called me on the telephone and asked me if I would come to the hospital and give him a blood transfusion. 
Then as I lay there and watched the blood run out of my arm, I asked the nurse how many blood transfusions I could safely give in the course of a year, and she said it would be perfectly all right if I gave four. That is, if it were necessary, I could save the lives of four people each year by a transfusion of my blood. A few years later, I found myself on the other end of this great miracle of transfusion after some, or during, during and after some major surgery, I was given nine blood transfusions, wherein a majority of my total supply was uh, uh, given to was, was exchanged. One afternoon, when the intern wasn't very busy, he figured out for me that in this process I had received 27 billion white corpuscles, and as he described their function, I thought of these little, these 27 little, or 27 billion little medical men going around dressed in white uniforms throughout my system, killing the disease and fighting the infection that otherwise might have terminated my life. But then in addition to that, he pointed out that I had also received 18 trillion red corpuscles. These were the little engineers that uh, continually went around to each one of my locations carrying oxygen and nutrition to keep me in business. Incidentally, I asked the intern if and all of this came for just the few dollars that I had previously put into the blood bank. I asked the intern if he would figure out how much money I was play, paying per corpuscle, but he, <laughs> he thought that problem would be a little bit complicated for a medical man to figure out. <laughs> but since that time, I've thought a great deal about the wonderful men and women that I have met along life's way who have given me another kind of transfusion. I've had some transfusions of faith, some transfusions of courage, some transfusions of industry. In fact, if you were to take away from me that which properly belonged to somebody else, there wouldn't be very much of me left. But from this experience, I have, I have made a great discovery that everybody ought to make for himself, and that is that from the Holy Scriptures and the great literature and the uplifting philosophies and from our own personal meditations and experience, we can extract those little segments of success. And if they're properly packaged by writing them down and memorizing them, we can use them at our will to infuse righteousness and success into our own lives. I think it must have been this that the great Apostle Paul had in mind when he said, Be therefore transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Oscar Hammerstein must have been thinking about something like this when in his song, stout-hearted men, he said, a heart can inspire other hearts with its fire. And then he said, give me some men who are stout-hearted men, who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. The Church was organized with just six people. And then this inspiration and revelation and the great doctrines of the Restoration have been spread around and they've bubbled up and trickled down until they have inspired the lives and helped to save the souls of a great many millions of other people. 
To facilitate this operation in my own case, I have written in my literary notebooks the names of over 100 of my personal donors. And then in my best language, I've tried to describe to myself the contributions that they have made available to me. And I thought this afternoon that I would like to try to take a leaf from Mr. Hammerstein's book and start you with 10. Transfusion number one comes from Grantland Rice. For over 50 years, this great sports writer and commentator went around the country following the great champions of sport, trying to isolate those traits in human personality and character which made men and women champions. And then he wrote over 700 poems about these which might serve us as instruments of transfusion. One of these he entitled Courage. He said, I'd like to think that I can look at death and smile and say, all I have left now is my final breath. Take that away, and you must either leave me dust or dreams or in far flight, the soul that wanders where the stardust streams through endless night. But, said he, I'd rather think that I can look at life with this to say, send what you will of struggle or of strife, blue skies or gray, I'll stand against the final charge of hate by peak and pit, and nothing in the steel-clad fist of fate can make me quit. Transfusion number two is entitled Integrity. Its donor is the little Indian patriot Mohandas Gandhi, who won the independence of India from England. Many, or when Gandhi was very young, his uh, mother, he took a pledge to his mother that he would remain a vegetarian throughout his life. Many years after Gandhi's mother had died, Gandhi became very ill, and the doctors tried to persuade him that if he would drink a little beef broth, it may save his life. But Gandhi said, even for life itself, we may not do certain things. There's only one course open to me, to die, but never to break my pledge. Now just think maybe for a minute what kind of a world this would be if each one of us could manifest that kind of integrity before his family and among his friends and before the world generally. Transfusion number, number three comes from our great Civil War President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln said, I am not bound to win, but I am bound to be true. I am not bound to succeed but I am bound to live by the best light that I have. I will stand with anybody while he stands right, and I will part with him when he goes wrong. Transfusion number four comes from a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln, and this picture is titled, entitled Honesty. During American slave days, a little black girl was placed up on the auction block to be sold to the highest bidder. And a prospective purchaser approached and said to this little girl, if I buy you and give you a good home and treat you kindly and feed you well, will you promise me that you will be honest? And this wonderful little black girl said, I will promise you that I will be honest whether you buy me and treat me kindly or feed me well or not. Transfusion number five comes from our great epic prize fight champion, Jack Dempsey. In Dempsey's early career, he had a fight contract which paid him $2 for each of the fights he won, nothing for those he lost. He, he said that he was knocked down a quite a lot back in those days, and every time he was knocked down, he wanted to stay down because he knew that 
No one would ever try to hit him again until he started to get up. But he had to get up because he was hungry and he needed the $2. And on one occasion, he was knocked down 11 times, and 11 times he got up to win a $2 prize fight. And then he wrote out his great formula for success, that he said that anybody who wants to be a champion must have two qualities. Number one, he must have the ability to, big, to give a big punch. And number two, he must have the ability to take a big punch. Now, sometimes in our lives, we take great pride in how we, how we can hand it out, but then we go down in a miserable heap because we can't take it. That is, we fall down before the, slight of the, the slightest, uh, most trifling temptations and problems. And Grantland Rice supports this uh, doctrine of Mr. Dempsey, that we ought to stand up to our problems. We ought to overcome our difficulties. We ought not to, to fall too easily before our temptations. When he said, for in this teeming hive, those who can take a beating are those who will survive. Transfusion number six comes from a very good friend of mine, the Polish girl, Maurice Klodowska, who married the French physicist Pierre Curie. And for many years, they worked together in an old abandoned leaky shed without funds and without outside encouragement or help, trying to isolate radium from a low-grade uranium ore called pitchblend. And after their 487th experiment had failed, Pierre threw up his hands in despair and said, it will never be done, never in a, maybe in a hundred years, but never in my day. And Marie confront, confronted him with a resolute face and said, if it takes a hundred years, it will be a pity, but I will not cease to work for it as long as I live. Transfusion number seven comes from Maxwell Anderson's play, The Mask of Kings, in which his leading character, Rudolph, says, if you'll go stop three tradesmen on the street and ask the three what it is they live by, they'll reply at once, bread, meat, and wine, and they'll be certain of it, victuals and drink, like the rhyme in Mother Goose makes up their diet. Nothing will be said of faith in things unseen or of following the gleam, just bread and meat and a can of wine to wash it down. But if you know them well, if you know them better than they do, behind the fish eyes and the bellies, each one burns candles at some altar of his mind in secret, secret often from himself. Each is a priest to some dim mystery by which he lives. Strip him of that, and bread and meat and wine won't nourish him. Without this hidden faith, he dies and goes to dust. Transfusion number eight comes from our great Old Testament prophet Job, whose testimony comes ringing down across the ages to us, in which he said, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And transfusion number nine comes from the great first prophet of this last dispensation, who said, and now, after the many testimonies that have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all that we give of him, that he lives, for we saw him. 
even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. And finally, number 10 comes to us from the greatest man who ever lived, who gave us in just two words the most, our most magnificent success formula when he said, Follow me, and may God help us that we may follow him. We can follow him in his faith. We can follow him in his doctrines. We can follow him in his godliness, and we may eventually become even as he is. And may God help us so to do and so to become. I sincerely pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It has recently been my privilege, along with the other general authorities assigned to attend the Great Area Conference in Stockholm, to travel to a limited extent in the great Scandinavian countries and on other assignments in England. For many centuries, these countries have been considered to be the, among the most enlightened and advanced in the history of the world. Their people have made great contributions to the comfort, well-being, and culture of society. But, as in America and so many other countries, there is in these countries evidence of a sickening plague which is sapping, if not destroying, the lifeblood of humanity. The plague about which I speak seems most obvious among many of the young people of youth and young adult age although it is by no means limited to them. I refer to the steady, creeping, moral dry rot which is manifested in the obscenity of their behavior and dress and in the debasing entertainment and centers of pornography which they frequent. Many of these young people appear not only as vulgar but dirty and repulsive. They have freaked out. Many seem to have forsaken all that is decent and possess a moral sickness and cynicism which is crippling and strangling to the enlightened human soul. They are eager participants in all of the repulsive and degrading practices which God has warned humanity against throughout the ages. There seems to be few countries in this world whose people have escaped this plague, for it is epidemic in proportion. In great contrast to the low scenes in some of the streets, when we assembled in St. Eric's Fair Center in Stockholm, where 4,000 members of this church had assembled, there was a completely different spirit and appearance. The youth and young adults at this great conference, along with the others participating, sang, danced, and demonstrated the best of themselves and their culture in a most delightful and uplifting manner. As we looked into their happy, clean, and appealing countenances and felt their enlightened presence, they radiated great moral strength and beauty. They reflected an inner light, even like the quartz prisms their Viking forefathers used to refract the rays of the sun when it was below the horizon to enable them to get their bearings. These youth and young adults are part of an almost worldwide new aristocracy as the elect of God, who know that the source of all light is divine. The message I wish to speak today is one of hope. 
It concerns a conviction as well as a challenge that the youth, young adults, and young marrieds of this Church who believe in and follow its lofty purposes as a part of this new aristocracy will, by their influence and example, begin to reverse this spreading moral dry rot the world over. In a letter to John Quincy Adams in 1813, Thomas Jefferson said, There is a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talents. There is also an artificial aristocracy founded on wealth and birth without either virtue or talents. How is this new aristocracy distinguished? First, that no one need be excluded. It is formed from those who seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. President Romney teaches us that there are three things we should know about such guidance. He says they are, one, that it is very real, two, that it is available to every person, and three, that to follow it is the sure and only way to the solution of our problems. This new aristocracy seeks not only to clean up the physical environment, the air we breathe, the planet on which we live, but by example and persuasion the moral environment as well. This new aristocracy will not be seeking to eliminate thoughtful inquiry or be a board of censors, as it were, but rather seek to teach right concepts and to replace bad ideas with enlightened thought. They will be involved in noble and selfless activities. About a month ago, four of the young adults gathered at Loughborough for a young adult conference, along with others from all over England. This group of four went to perform, as did the others, some unsolicited Christian service. Their intended activity, through no fault of their own, could not be performed, so they were left with some time on their hands. While walking along the street, they decided to stop at a pay telephone and call the local public hospital to see if they could be of help. A nurse in one of the wards answered the telephone and was asked by the one calling if the four young people could come over to the hospital and scrub floors or walls, wash dishes, or do any other similar needed task without pay. Apparently, this was an uncommon request. Because the young man calling said, after the nurse picked herself up from the floor, she said, Are you kidding? After a morning of helping scrub and visit patients, these four young adults had an unforgettable experience. They seek, as Aristotle said, to be those who have at heart the best interests of the state and of its citizens. This new aristocracy will follow the counsel of President Spencer W. Kimball and set styles of their own, no matter how great the peer pressure is. They will not be moved in their inner strength by the cynics, bereft of spirituality, who portray those who believe in God as being stupid, misguided, uninformed, and unsophisticated. This new aristocracy is not led astray or intimidated by the sophistries of the insincere and the hypocritical or the self-righteous. They will remember the counsel of Brigham Young who said, I would put you on guard against those who wear long faces and pretend to be so holy and so much better than everybody else. 
They cannot look pleasant because they are so full of the devil. Those who have got the forgiveness of their sins have countenances that look bright, and they will shine with the intelligence of heaven. The words of the prophet Joseph Smith will be remembered. I love that man better who swears a stream as long as my arm, yet deals justice to his neighbor and mercifully deals his substance to the Lord than the long, smooth-faced hypocrite. This is not an aristocracy of the haughty, the snobbish, and the arrogant, but of the humble and strong. They live lives of productivity and usefulness. Approximately 18,000 of them presently perform a matchless service as missionaries at considerable monetary sacrifice to themselves and or their loved ones. In the last fortnight I have been privileged to meet with some 200 of them laboring in a foreign country. One of them, a tall, smiling young American with a plastic raincoat folded in his coat pocket, approached. Elder, I queried, how long have you been on your mission? Since March, he responded. For no apparent reason, I asked, how long since you've heard from your mother? He smiled broadly. I got my second letter from her last week, he said. How long since you've heard from your father, I inquired. He said, I have not heard from him. I do not owe her he is. My, member, my parents are not members of this church, and I come from a broken home. I had a paper route in my hometown in the Midwest, and a family on my paper route who I hardly knew felt sorry for me and invited me to live with them. The missionaries found this family, and they joined the church, and I joined with them. I began to save my money so that if called on a mission, I might be able to go. I worked hard and was able to save much faster than I thought I could. Two years after my conversion, I am serving as a missionary. These choice young people are not an aristocracy of the rich, but of those who are rich in the Spirit of God. It is not an aristocracy of the politically or socially powerful, but of those who have great moral influence. It is and would be of those who are the elect of God. It is an aristocracy of the young saints of God even as those who are upon the stand this afternoon and who will be on the stand singing for us this evening. Jesus spoke of them when he said, He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. Listen to the counsel of Paul to the Colossians. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. How can the elect of God, as well as those who are older, begin this Herculean task? First, by their example of obedience to the commandments of God, thus enjoying the personal guidance of his Holy Spirit. Second, by sharing their special knowledge as missionaries. Third, by responding to the high level of expectancy of their parents and their church leaders. Fourth, through the giving of themselves. A very special young friend of mine served as a missionary of this church in Japan. His dedication to missionary work and the Japanese people was so complete and fulfilled 
that rather than spend all of his money his parents sent him, he unselfishly made a regular contribution of part of his money to help another local Japanese missionary. His parents sent him extra money so that he could buy some camera equipment available in Japan to record in pictures a few of the great experiences he was having. Rather than buy the camera equipment, which would have served him well for a lifetime, he chose rather to send the money back to his parents. In time, as with most missionaries, the clothes of my young friend became threadbare and thin. In order for him to come, be able to be, come home, it was necessary for him to buy a second-hand suit from one of the other elders. His regular denial of himself in order to share his substance with the local Japanese missionary was a very closely guarded secret. He is a good example of the young elect of God of this Church, as are hundreds of thousands of others. I desire to leave my witness of the divinity of this great and ever-advancing cause, made possible by the obedience sacrifice, and faithfulness of the elect of God. I know that God lives. I know that this is his work. I know that he inspires his great prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball. I know his path is the only way to peace and happiness here and hereafter. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.